morning, everybody. I am Gary Gronwald. I have the privilege of ser serving on the Iller Board here at, at Christ Community, and it's my privilege to uh, read God's Word uh, for us this, this morning. Uh, so if you would stand for the reading of the Word, which comes from Judges chapter 13, verses 15 through 18. Please stay here, Manoah told him, and we will prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to him, If I stay, I won't eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to him, What is your name so that we may honor you when your words come true? Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord asked him, since it is beyond understanding. Ladies and gentlemen, pray with me if you would. God, hear our prayer this morning. Thinking about the Sunday school lessons from Matthew chapter 5 and, and Romans 12 in, in recent days, we look at the words that Jesus spoke in the Beatitudes, and we realize honestly, we don't come close to that. We look at Paul's exhortations to holy living in Romans 12 and honestly acknowledge that is not us. We are sinners by nature and by deliberate choice. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, we rest our hope for eternity on this single truth. So we pray, God, don't leave us where you found us. Send your spirit over this place, over our worship, and over the preaching of your word. Conform us to the likeness of your Son, so that each day we might be closer to you than we were the day before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Wonderful prayer, and it's apropos for the sermon. But before we jump into the passage this morning, we have an excellent opportunity uh, to be encouraged and strengthened by one of our missionary families that we support, Richard and Janie Spencer. We are very thankful for them. You may have applause as they come on up. Oh, you need the microphone. Sorry, I meant to grab this. So not only are the Spencers uh, missionaries whom we support, but also a former pastor of this church as well. And so uh, this is our missionary lunch that will be taking place a little later today uh, in room 12 after second service. But before then... Richard, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us to introduce your ministry and the calling the Lord's placed on you. Thank you, Patrick. First of all, I want to say, and Janie, you want to say uh, together that it is an incredible, overwhelming delight to be here because we were here at, it wasn't even named Christ Community at the time, and we gave it that name just to see this church growing and vibrant and because it was back in those days when the, the vision to build a church that would impact this valley uh, was born, and it is an overwhelming joy for us to be here and to see this. So that's what I want to say first. Thank you to you. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Global Training Network. It was an organization that was started about 19 years ago by a pastor in Arizona, and it was started because of some overwhelming facts. A hundred years ago, 80% of all Christians lived in North America and Western Europe. Now, 80% of, of Christians live in the majority world, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Oceania. And in those countries, in the majority world, 
Eighty percent uh, of the pastors do not have any formal biblical training whatsoever at all. I read one statistic where the average pastor in the majority world has about three weeks of training. It is, uh, and another incredible statistic is here in America, there's a trained pastor for 250 people. In the majority world, there's a trained pastor for every 450,000. It's GTN's vision to change that reality, to equip pastors and leaders so that because they are the most effective and best positioned to fulfill the Great Commission, to train new generations of Christ followers. Janie and I, we go to Myanmar when we can because of the coup, Nepal and Rwanda. So. Okay. What a blessing. I'm really encouraged. I really would love for this church to support them. Uh, I can think of Paul's words, how can they believe unless they hear, and how can they hear unless someone is sent and that's what you are doing, equipping those who are being sent to share the gospel. Will you join me in prayer uh, for the Spencers? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the mighty work of faithfulness that the Spencers have been endeavoring to do for many years. Despite the cultural upheavals and the changes in countries, we know the calling is clear. And so please lay upon them the opportunity to speak clearly and to show powerfully how you are working in the ministries of training and equipping pastors with the clarity of the gospel, with the power of the gospel, and the ability to see you move and work in this world. And so be with them and encourage us to support them even further. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you. They will also be in the Grand Hall in between services if you'd like to meet them and find out more about Global Training Network. All right, brothers and sisters, we're continuing in the book of Judges today, as if it's any surprise. This week, though, I've had an unfortunate experience. It's not that big a deal. I've been biting this side of my lip all week, and it's formed somewhat of a, I don't know, it's not a sore, that sounds gross, uh, a blister, if you will, and I keep biting it right as it's healing, and that's how I feel about the book of Judges. Once it heals, we bite it again, and all of a sudden, we're right back where we started. And so, yes, I'm weary of the refrain, and the nation of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, but here it is again, another cycle of evil, and what is God going to do about it? And so this morning, it's not super discouraging, it's actually an encouraging moment. I wouldn't say it's fantastic, it's wonderful, there's still blindness, there's still ignorance, there's still uncertainty that surround this, but this is the cycle of Samson. It is a fantastic cycle, we love hearing the stories of Samson, but it's actually discouraging when we look at it for its whole. It's Samson's nativity story. It's how his calling is different than the other judges. Think Gideon, Barak, Jephthah were called in adulthood, but Samson is called before his conception. This story, primarily focusing on Samson's parents, supremely displays God is the hero who saves. The title of this series is God is the hero of this story, and this chapter in particular highlights that. But how does the hero save? Our main point this morning that I would love for you to grasp is God works on His people's behalf even if they don't want it, if they don't ask for it, or even recognize it. God works on His people's behalf. But before we get into the, the story and read through the points, I want to give you four questions to ponder. There's certainly application for us at the end of the sermon, and they foreshadow the points that are going to be coming, but I'd love for you to consider them before we jump in. First one, is God delivering me from sin's oppression that I have grown comfortable with? 
Do I pray without worrying if God will listen? Do I recognize God and His work? And lastly, are the fear of God and amazement of God present in me? Are both? I would love for you to consider these questions as we progress through this passage, because we'll return to them at the end of this morning. But ultimately, it will lead us to an acknowledgement that the work of God is, to, is unto salvation. And that work continues today. For He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we ask the question, how does the hero save it applies to us today. I think that we're, here's where we will begin in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. The first way in which this, the hero saves, God delivers his people from comfortable oppression. Read with me in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. The author writes, Israel again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. This judgment is twice as long as the previous longest judgment of 20 years under Barak. So 40 years is a long time. So what we've done in this chapter 13 in the book of Judges is we've reached the anticlimax, if you will, for the people of God. This is the bottom of the barrel. Yes, the civil war is coming, but the, the, the depth of their unrighteousness and canonization is on display here. See, at the time, we have the most straightforward depiction of God's heroic acts. The cycle in Judges are more of a downward spiral, if you will. Apostasy begets judgment. Judgment leads to a cry for deliverance, and cries lead to a delivering judge. Samson's cycle is a little different. We're 200 years removed from the time of Joshua. The people of God are pagan through and through, or what we have been calling canonization. They're canonized. Yet, until this point, the oppression of a foreign people over the nation has always led Israel to cry out for deliverance. In this cycle, there are no such cries. No one is asking for the deliverance. No one is wanting it. It's only acceptance. Israel is comfortable with their oppressors. So when you read the phrase in verse 1, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, this is a proclamation that they worship the Baals, Baals and the Asherahs freely. They engage in self-serving idol worship because they want to. The righteousness of God has truly been abandoned. Yet despite the lack of cries for deliverance, God is still actively going to deliver His people from their oppressors because He is faithful. So God's primary motivation to rescue His people here in chapter 13 is not His people's actions, it's not their cries, it's not their desires, it's out of His own character and nature He chooses to deliver His people. He is a God who saves. If He is a Savior, He saves. And so what is his means of deliverance? What will he do? He'll bring a child into the world. Sound familiar? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are unable to conceive and have no children, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean. For indeed, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair, because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. Then the woman went and told her husband, A man of God came to me. 
He looked like, an, like the awe-inspiring angel of God. I didn't ask him where he came from. He didn't tell me his name. He said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Therefore, do not eat, do not drink wine or beer or do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazareth to God from birth until the day of his death. And when we read this, this is about encouraging as it's going to get from here on out. This is as cool as it's going to get. We're going to get a little darker here in a second. But I brought my bias to the text, if you will. We're all biased in some degree of our background, our experiences, and I needed the commentators to actually correct me. My bias is kind of simple. When I read this, I looked at Manoah and his wife, and I thought of them genuinely as wanting to be good, stand up, genuine, if you will. The author, however, has another intention. His construction of verse 2 makes it pretty apparent. It's easier in the Hebrew than it is in English. So let me reread verse 2 with you with a little inflection, if I may. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the clan of Dan, whose name was Manoah. Get my drift? There was a certain guy. We should know it's that guy from the clan of Dan, and Dan's not the clan you want to be from for righteousness' sake. It's the clan that was kind of don't want to do anything, don't want to be a part. So what we're doing, and what the author is doing, is he's painting a picture of what is to transpire. This is how we're to interpret the next couple acts and interactions. See, Manoah is being compared to his nameless wife and the angel of the Lord. We're going to have the comparisons and character evaluations between the three. His name, Manoah, means resting place. But the reason why he's named and his wife's not is because we will see through this text he is anything but at rest. See, the family has a significant trial. The wife is barren, unable to conceive and give birth to a child. This is repeated many times. Barrenness was believed to be a judgment from God concerning sin, some act of unrighteousness, something that you have harmed a God. Yet despite that external picture, God intervenes in this family's pain by delivering a simple promise. You will have a son. This trial and oppression will be over. And he will begin delivering his people, not just, not just you from the trial of barrenness, but your, all of your people from the oppression of the Philistines. So we compare this with the nation as the whole. Everyone is under judgment actually because of sin and their unrighteousness. And God is stepping in to rescue them from this trial. But none of them have asked for it. They will have a son, and he will be a Nazarite. Now, we can spend some time in this. This devotes probably its own sermon. I'm just going to give you briefly, you can read about what a Nazarite vow is in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But there's three components to a Nazarite vow. See, a Nazarite vow is to take a nazir or a vow to be set apart or consecrated to God. And so the three stipulations are, one, abstain from any fermented drink, so beer, wine, alcohol, heavy spirits. Second stipulation, your hair was to remain uncut during the length of your vow. And third stipulation, you cannot encounter or touch a dead body. Now, kind of odd, if you know the story of Samson, all of these are going to get crossed. And only one's really going to be held to, the not cutting of hair. But if you notice, the angel of the Lord gives another stipulation— to his mother, who she needs to be a Nazarite vow while she is bearing the child. Don't eat anything unclean. 
Now, that's not in the Nazarite vow. Why does the angel need to say that? Because the pagan idolatry of canonization has swept across Israel. They don't practice what everyone is required to do, the dietary laws and restrictions. The angel is giving us insight to seeing how pagan these people have become. So the angel is stating his requirement and reveals the people's abandonment to basic laws and obedience to God. So despite all this, God is still going to bless these people. See, we have a nation accepting the rule of their foreign oppressors. We have a couple without a child and without even knowledge of the Lord and basic practices and understanding of what he desires and requires. No one is asking for God to deliver them from national, even personal oppression. Yet God begins to rescue his people from the situations they cannot perceive as oppression. Is God any different today? Brothers and sisters, no. No, we we don't have Philistine oppressors over us. Yet we've been set free in Christ from the oppression of sin and death. Yet if we continue in sin, that same sinful oppression are the consequences of sin. And God is desiring to free us from that oppression in sin, even if we become comfortable with it, even if we're not asking for that deliverance, God is going to work on our behalf to deliver us from it. And so as Manoah's wife explained, experienced, excuse me, God will break into our life in one way or another to rescue us from our oppression. But how else does the Lord save? Well, he listens to prayer. Point number two, God listens to prayer. Look at verse eight and nine, eight, nine, and 10. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, let the man of God you sent come again to us and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah, and the angel of of God came again to the woman. She was sitting in the field, and her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman ran quickly to her husband and told him, The man who came to me the other day has just come back. Prayer is phenomenal. Prayer is good. We would look at this and see Manoah's actions as righteous and encouraging, and to some extent they are. But remember, the author's introduction of Manoah has already given us some indications that Manoah's prayers is actually pretty convoluted. The stage has been set for our intended interpretation of his actions. His prayer is more self-serving than it is genuine. Why? Well, the angel of the Lord visited his wife, but not him. She got the honor. He did not. So he asks for another visitation in order to be taught and instructed. But notice in the prayer, he says and includes the word us. Would you come again and teach us and show us as if his wife needed it? He and his wife don't require the instruction, and he doesn't either. He wants the honor of being visited and instructed the way his wife was. Therefore, It is truly a miracle that we read in verse 9, God listened. God listened to self-serving prayer. God is not beholden to Manoah, but his grace abounds to give him what he does not deserve. I want to warn us a little bit to not have some New Testament snobbery, if you will. We grow up with the New Testament. We've grown up with Jesus saying, pray in my name and I will listen and I will give to you. That was uncommon then. People don't know if God's going to listen. There's no certainty with it. So we shouldn't look down on Manoah in entirety to say, duh, of course he would listen. But prayer is a miracle. That the creator of all things has an interest in what you say, regardless of its disposition and how it came. 
He is interested in us. He desires for us to pray. So remember, Manoah is not righteous. He doesn't have a regenerate heart. And his prayer is more self-serving than humble. But the fact that he prayed at all ought to be encouraging to one another. That is a right and proper response. So if we cut Manoah a little bit of a slack, a little bit of slack, he is unsure of the message that his wife gave him. And so he seeks confirmation in a convoluted way. But that's pretty similar to a previous judge we've studied, Gideon, asking God a couple times for confirmation about what he was supposed to do. And wasn't God patient? God still listened. So do you see the majesty of God in this interaction? God's ear is towards his people, even when his people's heart is not aligned with his. That, is a true, that truly is a miracle. Before Jesus gave his disciples the Lord's Prayer, what did they ask Jesus? Teach us how to pray. Prayer was a mystery then, and it still is for many of us today. God allows prayer ultimately to influence him. We can debate on how much or in what ways God has influenced. That's another discussion. But God depicts prayer in the Bible as able to influence him in, in the course of our life. And so you and I have little to no influence over our circumstances that surround us, but we know God ultimately does. He has total control. He is sovereign. And so he has directed us to influence him, who then in turn influences the world around us. That is a miracle. And we probably take it for granted more often than not. But that's the second point. God listens to prayer as he saves. What else? I think this is a powerful one. God patiently removes blindness. Another way you could put it, God patiently removes ignorance. Our author is repeatedly going to convey Manoah and his wife attempting to ascertain the identity of this messenger. They don't know who it is. We're informed that the messenger is the angel of the Lord. This is a title given to any human-like appearance of God in the Old Testament. We call these instances theophanies, or I would call them Christophanies. These are what I believe are pictures of Christ and interactions with Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation in the New Testament. So let's keep reading in verse 11. So Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he asked him, Are you the man who spoke to my wife? I am, he said. Then Manoah asked him, When your words come true, what will be the boy's responsibilities and work? Seems like a good question. Verse 13, And the angel of the Lord answered Manoah, Your wife needs to do everything I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink wine or beer. And she must not eat anything unclean. Your wife must do everything I have commanded her. Please stay here, Manoah told him, and we'll prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to them, If I stay, I won't eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not know the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to him, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your words come true? Why do you ask my name, the angel of the Lord asked him, since it's beyond understanding. I think annoyingly, or to Manoah annoyingly, the messenger appears to his wife again instead of him though it was his prayer. Still, the ensuing dialogue conveys a bit of a power struggle between the angel of the Lord and Manoah. Manoah tries to ascertain favor, even to manipulate this this visitor. We see this in two ways. First, he offers the messenger a meal. The messenger, whose identity we know as God, always has the upper hand in this situation. 
God will not dine with them. But why? Offering a meal was a sign of hospitality, especially for an honored visitor. This was a good thing Manoah was ultimately doing. But why did the angel of the Lord say no? Despite the desire of good intentions, I think the angel of the Lord sees through Manoah's intentions. For he desires fellowship and future benefit. But what does God ultimately do? Or desire? He desires sacrifice before fellowship. This is what the angel of the Lord presents to him. For God's sacrifice must precede fellowship. And Manoah misses this point. But the second attempt is a little bit more blatant at Manoah's ultimate disposition and desires. He asks for the messenger's name. To know the name was to know about the person and how to persuade them. Not so genuine, is he? And so God's retort is piercing through Manoah's attempts. He sees through his ploy, and God confronts his request. Why do you want to know my name? It's beyond understanding. It's beyond you. You can't grasp this. This is, I am not one to be controlled, easily influenced, or to have power over. Manoah and his wife miss who they're with. In the previous iterations and cycles, we see when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, Gideon knew who it was. But now, 200 years removed from a time of faithfulness, the people don't recognize God. They're unfamiliar with his presence, his words, his actions, his glory. Are we any different? In some ways, we are similar when we ask the question, God, where are you? Why aren't you here? You seem so far away. What leads a mind to consider such thoughts? Like Manoah and his wife, inexperience with God leads to unfamiliarity when his presence or work breaks into our life. Inexperience leads to unfamiliarity. This is an interesting word. When the angel of the Lord says, it's beyond your understanding, this word in the Hebrew is peli. Only one other time it's used in the Old Testament, and it's King David who uses it in Psalm 139. This idea of being beyond understanding or, or beyond me. David doesn't look at it as a negative. He looks at it as a positive, though frustrating. Read with me in Psalm 139, verses 5 through 8. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge, Pele, is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. And then this is his conclusion. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Notice the, con the condition of David's disposition right here. There's a tension between two things. I cannot ascend to the heights of God's knowledge and understanding, and yet, because I, even though I can't ascend to it, that doesn't mean I'm not encompassed by it, surrounded by it, enjoying it. Two things. He is, has righteous frustration, if you will, in this moment. He wishes to know God, but can't ascend to that level. And his comfort, then, is that God is coming down to him. God condescends to his level. So he knows God's presence and is familiar with God because he's been seeking God most of his life. Look what the Apostle James describes, a, di a disciple's recognition of God. So let's get a New Testament perspective. James 4, 7 through 8, the Apostle writes, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
pursue God and His righteousness, and our blindness will turn to sight. And God is patiently going to lead you and I to remove us from this ignorance and our blindness. And so this is an un undertaking that God alone can only do. He is patiently leading us, like Manoah and his wife, to recognize Him. He's removing our blindness. But what happens when our blindness is removed? What's the expectation? Let's keep reading. God instills fear and amazement or awe or wonder. Fill in what you want. God instills fear and amazement. Look at verse 19. Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on the rock to the Lord, who did something miraculous while Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up from the altar to the sky, the angel of the Lord went up in its flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell face down on the ground. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. Ah, I get it now. We're certainly going to die, he said to his wife, because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had intended to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from us. And we, he would not have shown us all these things or spoken to us like this. Thank God for his nameless wife. <laughs> Once a person recognizes the Lord and beholds his glory, every reaction is similar. Fear and amazement. Being petrified and in wonder. The angel of the Lord is caught up in the fire and the sacrifice and ascends back into heaven. Add that to the list of things I can't wait to see and witness. And at that moment, their blindness was truly removed, and they fall prostrate on the ground in worship. The proper response. Yet they interpret this action differently. We're to admire and emulate the faith of the nameless woman and to learn from the ignorance of the named man. The husband has ignorant or irrational fear. He believes death will come swiftly after seeing God, and that's not unfounded. There's some rationality to that. To see and behold God in his glory and being sinful would result in death. We can think of Moses seeing the, the cleft, uh, being hid in the cleft as God and the, walks by, and we see the train of his robe. But he's guilty of seeing but not beholding the significance of their visitation. Like Jephthah last week, his pride continues to cloud his reason. Blinded by selfish concern, he only expects death. But his wife delivers good news leading to assurance and peace. Remember, Manoah's name means resting place. But his wife is the one who finds rest, not him. Her meditation on the wondrous events and the interactions with the angel of the Lord has led to a rational fear. She falls down in worship, but also knows that they are God's instruments to deliver his people out of Philistine oppression by giving birth to a son. Why would God promise this if he's just going to kill them? See, the fear God instills in us is not irrational, but rational. We fear the mighty hand of the king of all creation, the rightful ruler whose creation, whose creation has rebelled and rightfully deserves judgment. This is what Isaiah saw when he entered into the throne room of Isaiah chapter 6. He beholds the glory of God. And what does he say? Woe is me, death to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. It's a similar interaction. Yet just like Isaiah, 
God enters into our world to amaze us with his mercy and his grace. He gives to Isaiah a burning coal that cleanses him and makes him clean, not of Isaiah's doing, but of God's alone. And so God's great love has provided a way for our rational fear and the astonishment and wonder of who he is and his grace and mercy that leads us to a couple things, faith, hope, and love being directed at him. These two tensions, these two realities being held in tension, fear and amazement leads to faith, hope, and love. It instills it in our hearts. The prophet Zephaniah writes in 317, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Reading this both terrifies me and excites me that God, in our midst today, is loving us through his compassion and leading us out of our oppression to sin. It instills in us faith, hope, and love to want to worship him. And this, the psalmist will actually state this disposition really clearly when he says, rejoice with trembling. Two things can be true at the same time. Standing before the presence of the Lord is trembling, it's, it's fearful, but when he rejoices over us, astonishment and wonder ought to fill our heart. So why would the hero care for us? Or why would the hero even care for the people of Israel that ultimately have turned his back on him again and again? Yes, he's delivering them. He's removing their blindness. He's miraculously still listening to them. He's instilling fear and amazement, but why? That's very simple. The hero is always faithful. The hero, God, is faithful. So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. Then the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. God jo chose to bring a judge to Israel in the form of a child. Samson's calling is unlike the other judges because he has no life prior to his calling. From the time of his conception to the time of his death, he had one, one direction, to liberate Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He was blessed. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. This is where the good things really end for the story of Samson. <laughs> Samson is a tragedy of opportunity. All the ideal circumstances are set within him. Every metric for a hero is at max capacity for him. And he squanders it. Even his name Samson, which means little son or, or son boy, is probably a connection to the local sum temple just miles down the road from where they live. This is the air Manoah and his wife breathe. They don't even recognize when they're doing an unrighteous thing, naming their son little son. Yet despite all the faults and failures, God begins to deliver his people, despite them. So God is faithful to his covenant promise to be our deliverer, our protector, our savior, and our friend. And just like Israel's current apostasy, God didn't stop from acting. He's acting on our behalf. Our failures won't dissuade God from saving us, from rescuing us, from pursuing us, from listening to our prayers. Today's chapter is an ideal picture of Old Testament deliverance by God's grace alone, received through faith alone. The people desired it not and did nothing to warrant it. God saves because he is faithful, even when we're not. 
And so he's not just the hero then, he remains the hero today. Consider these questions again. Is God delivering me from sin's oppression that I've grown comfortable with? If we were to review our life and our actions, is there sin that I have simply grown comfortable with? I accept it. I think God would like to deliver us from that oppression, though we may not recognize it. Do I pray without worrying if God will listen? On one end of the spectrum, it might be God will never listen to me. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's probably a flippancy about prayer where we come to it asking mere petitions without praise and adoration or wanting to worship. God will listen to either, but he's drawing us to the rightful tension between the two. Do I recognize God in his work? You just heard a bit of God's work from the Spencers up here, and you can hear it. God is active in our world. He's faithfully doing miracles in our midst that we may not know it. But God is present in your life. I'm confident of it. I merely need to spend an afternoon with you asking questions about what is happening in your life, what trials are in front of you, what perceptions and wisdom are you gaining from another that I'd be able to pick out how God is moving and working. But that's because I have a familiarity with God. I know him. I hope you will as well. Are the fear of God and the amazement of God present in you this morning? You both wonder that he knows your name and amaze that he listens to your prayers, desires to have you in his fellowship and family, and at the same time, he's the high king of heaven and his anger burns against sin and unrighteousness. We ought to live in that tension, be faithful, righteous people. Do we trust that God is faithful? This morning, brothers and sisters, we come to the holy table of communion. Why? because it's the miraculous sign of God entering our world and saving us without asking for it. Worship team, if you wouldn't mind coming up as we transition. The Lord instructs us to remember communion again and again when he says, do this in remembrance of me. And so coming to this table, we remember Christ and all that he's done for us. But let's think of some things that parallel our story today. Jesus was sent into the world miraculously as a child. He was sent to deliver his people from sin, sins, oppression, and death, despite them not asking for it. His death would actually bring about that, that deliverance, as Samson's will in a couple weeks. And he patiently removes the blindness of his disciples so that they can carry on his missions to the end of the world, ends of the world. So though the invitation of this meal is towards all who believe, we cannot approach this table frivolously. Jesus himself dismissed Judas from the table before instituting this ordinance. So I want to be encouraging to you by also protecting. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that some in their community were sick and had died because they partook of this meal in an unworthy manner. It is good and right to self-reflect in this moment, to see if we have, by our own sin or selfishness, divided the body of Christ in any way. If we have, let us not partake, but go seek out reconciliation with our brothers and sisters, and then we may take the meal. And so as the symbol of our unity of the family of God, we hold these communion elements truly to the end. So in the time of this worship, I would encourage you to reflect on these questions. God, how are you freeing me from my oppression? What sin do you want to bring to my mind? That you are listening to me, you are encouraging me, you are filling me with hope, love, and joy. Consider these things before you take communion.
But I pray that you take them and acknowledge that the hero is actively saving you and I. He has not stopped working. He won't stop working despite you not needing to ask for it, recognize it, or even want it.